Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum salam. How are you, Mehdi? Alhamdulillah, how are you doing? Cool, good, alhamdulillah. So if you could please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, my name is Muhammad Mahdi Kareem. I'm based in the UK. Um, I'm a future trainee, which basically means I'm going into law. So law is the area that I'll be specializing in. But I'm also the founder of the MMK Academy, which is an enterprise that focuses on two things. Firstly, we work with children and adults to help upskill their public speaking skills. But more recently, what we also do is open up access for young people to the political world in the UK. So these are the two things that we do. It's a bit of a side hustle, and it's something that I really enjoy as well. Well, quite a vast portfolio you have over there. Um, could you tell us a little bit about some of your interests and hobbies? These are things that you do on the side, definitely your interests, but more professionally. Uh, what football teams you support? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a massive Arsenal fan. I know that will cause some controversy with the audience. Uh, we had a good season, actually, this season. We should have won, but um, yeah, maybe next season, I'm not sure. But I also like playing tennis. Tennis is my main sport. Um, and over there, a bit of swimming and, and running as well. So it's a good fit. So these are the things I enjoy doing, but uh, Arsenal fan. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting to hear. Let's see how our audience reacts to that, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we do know that you have roots with our. Could you yeah. explain some of that? For um, sure. So even though I'm London-based, um, my mum's family is all based in Dar over here, um, and I love coming to Dar. We try and come as often as we can. My grandparents um, were based here, and um, also my mum's brothers and, and sister is over here as well. And I just love it. It's a good break from the UK, different style of life, and it's somewhere where I can come and enjoy a new culture, but also a culture that's not too far from home, because we have a lot of similarities over there in Stanmore, but also some differences, which I really like here as well. So this question is going to cause a bit of controversy yeah. with our audience, yeah. Dar or the UK. In, in what sense? In what sense? Overall, yeah. Uh, UK is home, uh, but Dar is also home. So home is home. That's the answer I'm going to give. <laughs> Quite political there. I mean, yeah, makes sense according to your background. Okay, um, so... You mentioned that you're the founder of MMK Academy, yeah. and uh, could you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, founding it and sure. uh, up to where it is today? Let's start off with um, your journey as a student in school, right? Sure. And how you led up all the way to starting the MMK Academy. Yeah. So at school, um, I was always very quiet, quite introverted. And I'd actually say that now the personality is introverted, but you evolve a little bit and you have to adapt in certain scenarios. So I'd say that. In social scenarios, sometimes my battery drains very quickly. So I'm still at the core an introvert, but back then it was an introvert on the extreme level, to the extent that there was one parents' evening uh, at Madrasa actually, where my parents turned up and you know the teacher was sort of looking through the names, and it was the point where he didn't realise that I existed because I never contributed to anything, just sat at the back and just came along and did nothing. So naturally, I was quite quiet and. It got to a stage where around year nine, uh, year eight, year nine, I saw people around me doing really well in terms of their confidence, they could express themselves. And inside you had this sort of burning pain. Why can't I do the same? Because I had the knowledge inside, but there was something that was preventing me from being able to share that with other people. And, you know, it was a lack of confidence, lack of self-belief and self-esteem as well. And... Um, you know, there were times when I'd go home and sometimes cry to say that 
why am I not able to express myself like my peers are? And it really burned me up inside. So Alhamdulillah, you know, I had supportive parents, and they pushed me to do this program called MUN, Model United Nations. I'm sure some of the audience would have done that here. I know Dara is quite big with MUN. Um, and that was the place where initially you're thrown in the deep end because you've got people who are very good speakers. And I used to get really frustrated there as well. You'd go to these sessions, you'd have people who are excellent speakers. And again, you'd feel really, really bad about yourself that you couldn't do this. But in a sense, being forced in a way, but also encouraged to go to these sessions helped because then naturally you get better. You pick up the skills of other people around you and slowly you start to develop your public speaking skills. And that's what I did. I'd attend every week. We'd do it every Thursday night. So we'd go to the mosque for Thursday night, and we'd also do MUN there as well. And slowly, I built up the confidence, and within a year or two, um, became the head of the MUN Society at Stanmore, and then brought it to my school, um, which was just a state school in the UK. And the fantastic thing about that is usually we would import certain ideas from our schools into the mosque. But this was the reverse. We were importing an idea that we'd grown at the mosque into school, and they were very appreciative of that. So we founded the MUN Society at a school called Dr. Challenges, which was where I went uh, in the UK. And we did some pretty cool things there. So we trained, uh, we had a society of around 60, 70 people. We trained 60, 70 students to improve their skills. But alhamdulillah, we also managed to go to some international conferences. So the most memorable was St. Petersburg uh, in Russia. And around that time, uh, I don't know if you remember 2018, there was a Russian poisoning that happened. But that, that was really tense because the UK-Russian relations were really, really tense at that point. And we were obviously from the UK and we were going to Russia. So there were times we thought the trip would be cancelled. But all in all, it felt like you were in a, in a movie, just uh, the amount of tension there was. But that was challenges MUN, and you know that's how I guess I developed the ability, very much from a position of not having something, um, feeling the pain of not having it, being encouraged to keep on continuing because there were points that I wanted to quit, a lot of points that I wanted to quit, and then eventually getting there over a long period of time, one or two years. So that's that's where the speaking journey began. So that's really impressive. I mean, from being such an introverted person up to the personality you have now, it's yeah. quite an adaptation. And I mean, it proves that with persistence, everything does fall into place, definitely. For sure. But one thing I'd add is it's not just self-persistence. This is not, you know, me being driven. I would actually say at that point, I didn't have very much of a drive at all. And so it's important. When you're young, obviously it's you have the privilege of having certain people around you push you and drive you. So I wouldn't say you always need to drive yourself, but so long as you find people around you who can give you that drive, that helps. Oh, wow. So yeah, definitely being in the right circles does uh, make a major difference, being in the right environment. Um, yeah, wow, that's pretty interesting. I mean, no one would have thought seeing you today that you'd come from that background, but Just everyone has a story. Exactly. Definitely. So how were you able to turn what you were doing into a business then? Obviously, we have heard of the MMK Academy. Sure. We see it uh, out there. And uh, you turned what something that bothered you, yeah. not being able to speak in public, into a skill which you then uh, translated, I mean, brought into your school sure. after presenting at the mosque. Um, how were you then able to 
turn this into a side hustle. Okay, fantastic. So I think from my own journey, I'd seen that um, when I couldn't do something, when I couldn't speak, when I didn't have the confidence, it pained me inside. And that is the case, I think, for a lot of people as well. And generally, parents out there are always looking for opportunities to make sure their children excel at different things. And the priorities tend to be sports, for example, uh, tend to be academics. And one area that I think has always been something that parents want to focus on, but maybe they haven't had the time or known where to go, is how to improve the child's confidence. So there was always a need out there uh, for that. And I appreciated that, because speaking is one of the most important skills. You know, you might learn... Pythagoras at school, trigonometry, but you don't use it every day. Speaking is something you do every single minute and every single day. And you're never really taught it in school, are you? Um, so the demand was there. But actually how the MMK Academy started was quite lucky, complete luck. It wasn't, there wasn't any plan to, to start it initially. COVID hit, and this is March 2020. And university told me, so I went to the University of Warwick and I was in my first year there. And they told me that, look, everything for you is cancelled. Your first year, you don't really matter. Uh, second and third year, are going to have their exams, but your stuff is all cancelled. So we were sat at home, and I didn't know what to do. And I'd actually put in applications for the local supermarket to go and stack shelves there, because I wanted to keep occupied, and I'm someone who always has to do something. And then a neighbor came along, and the neighbor said, look, I've got a young child, and the child really struggles with their confidence. And I know that you've done some public speaking through MUN. Would you be able to sit with the child and maybe mentor them for a week and see how far they progress? And maybe they can open up to you a little bit. So with these opportunities, I never say no. And I said, yes, let, let's do it. Let's start the following week. So then I started to panic because I said yes, but I didn't quite have a plan as to what to do. But actually, because I had done a bit of coaching at MUN at school, I built up some material that way as well. So it wasn't that I was starting from the position of scratch. I had that material. It was more than converting it into a medium that was appropriate for a younger audience because I'd been working with 16, 17, 18-year-olds at school. You know, I had a much younger member here. So I sat down and I worked out what are the key ideas that I want to get across and how am I going to do that with a child. And we developed a, a course first course, which was Intro to Public Speaking, but it was very much games-based, because children like to learn through games. And incorporating a theory through games um, was how we delivered that first course. So that's how the academy started, and very much from a position of luck, but also experience as well. So you know how there's a saying that you make your own luck? Um, I think it's true to an extent. Um, sometimes Luck plays a part. Sometimes hard work plays a part. It's not purely luck. It's not purely hard work. But so long as you're in the right time in the right place, like I was, have the experience but also have a bit of luck, that's, that's how it starts. The balance of everything. There's no one sort of factor that was important. Definitely. It must be really rewarding to have been in that position at one point, having transitioned out of that, yeah. and now being in a position to help others come out of that same bubble that you were present in before. For sure. And I think at the time I didn't realize it because when you... When you're in the thick of it, you just do it, and you just perform, and, and, and you don't have time to reflect. But I think through the journey, sometimes you think back and you say, Alhamdulillah, you know, it's great to flip the position you were into then helping others. Yeah. It's when the realization actually hits. Exactly. Yeah.
we have uh, the story of MMK now, and yeah. uh, we know about how it became a business and how you're able to convert something that b was a passion of yours at some point sure. into a business. Um, what are some challenges that you'd highlight with uh, in your process of yeah. starting MMK as a business? So I would say that um, I think the first challenge is naturally because I was 19 when I started the business. And one thing I forgot to mention in the previous segment is how the academy has grown. So do you mind if I touch on that and then maybe yeah, we can focus ahead. on some of the challenges. So after that first client, then um, when you start the business, you do everything yourself. So I did the marketing myself and learned to love to grow Canva. So I, I love designing things on Canva. I find it's an outlet, you know, channel your creativity. So I designed the first posters. I then sort of started to get to grips with how to use a spreadsheet for the financial side, you know, what goes in, what comes out. Um, and so you do everything yourself. And then I started to market. And I think when you market the product you have, um, I was told lots of things at the start, but the thing I think has been the most useful is market within your own community. So over there in Stanmore, we have a group chat, Koja Entrepreneurs Organization, KEO. And I put the um, poster there, and I shared it with a lot of Koja. And I shared it with other people too, but the majority of the clients I got first off were Koja, your own people. Um, and that's really important. I'd say that if anyone's looking to start a business here, make sure you use your own community, because I know that Sometimes you might think that you want to go out there and, and build your brand outside, but you grow it organically. And the way you do it is by tapping into people who know you, and you've got that relation because you're part of the same community. And then once you build a brand within, then you can go outside. So I think community was so important in, in those initial days. Um, so we grew the children's side. So we were working with children um, on a weekly basis. And then about three months down the line, one of the parents came up to me and said, I've got an interview coming up, and I've seen the content that you're going through with my child. I think I'd benefit from this, because I never learned this at school. Can you sit down with me? Again, I said yes, but again, panic, because I didn't have a flag oh. there. Um, so this time, you know, um, because I've done the MUN stuff again, sort of thought, what are the key points that you learn in terms of public speaking, in terms of interview practice? And how am I going to deliver that to an adult now? This point, I sat down then with some professionals in the field. So there's a drama coach that was there. Um, and worked out that I've got this content. And obviously, this is my personal experience, but I want to take it up professionally to the next notch. And they helped me work through the content and deliver it and make sure that it was fit for an adult. So then we delivered the content with the adult client. And that was the start of our coaching with adults as well. So we work with children and adults. And um, so I think because we work with adults, one of the big challenges is, is that I am 19. And some of the other coaches we've had have been young as well. Because that's something that I, that's our USP, and I'll explain why it's our USP later. We only have coaches between the ages of 18 and 25. So one of the challenges is, when you have a 40 or a 50 or even a 60-year-old, getting advice from someone younger, there may always be that complex about, you know, this person's younger than me, how can they give me advice? Uh, and when people come up to you, especially when they're older and they say, okay, that's fantastic, but you're young, why should I come to you? Often, even if you give them a good answer, there's still that 
barrier to say that, okay, he's still young, he's learning, what can he offer me? But the reason why 18 to 25 is a USP is because when you're 18 to 25, you're not too far away from the child's age. So you can easily relate to them. And relatability is huge in this because when you help someone to develop, you need to let them be able to trust you and you need to be relatable to them. So you can't use outdated techniques with children. And because I was a child not too long ago, I know what works. I'm not too far away from that. So I can tap into the children. But with the adult side, the reason why 18 to 25 is so important is because as you grow older and the stresses of life become more, your horizon narrows. And what I mean by your horizon is what you think you're capable of, capable of doing narrows. They say that when you're between the ages of 18 and 25, at that age, you think you can do anything. You can rule the world, right? The world's your oyster, they say. And that's a really good mentality to have because as you go older and as that confidence maybe narrows and your outlook on life narrows, then what you think is possible also narrows as well. And so as a child, as an 18 to 25-year-old rather, when we work with 40, 50, 60-year-olds, we're helping them to think like they did when they were our age, 18 to 25. And that allows them to then broaden their horizons and ultimately um, think in a way where they're going to take responsible risks, and that's how they improve their confidence. So we have a USP of 18 to 25. It works for both children and adults as well. Wow, so there's a lot of content that you covered uh, in these last few minutes, but let's touch on, let's break it down, right? Sure. First of all, you mentioned um, starting, off, uh, starting out the brand. You had to do lots of tasks yeah. on your own, and I think that's all part of starting a startup. Sure. Right? You were your own marketing manager. Yeah. Uh, you are your own accountant as well. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, that's definitely one of uh, the challenges that you did face, right? Sure. So uh, if you could uh, highlight on how you were able to catch up on all of those skills and any things that did help, and uh, with that, give advice to other people who want to sure. go down the startup route and uh, how they'd be able to gather on this skill set yep. and translate it into their businesses. And uh, secondly, um, you did mention that uh, when there's a younger person telling an older person uh, what to do, yeah. um, there's this complex that comes in between, and sure. it's, it's natural. It's yeah. not something that can be avoided. And I think uh, that's a perfect transition to the next segment of this episode, which is um, youth leadership. Yeah. But after you highlight on the podcast, on For the sure. startup too. For sure. So first question was, how do you manage everything at once? Um, I think that it's important to realize you can't do everything yourself. And I realized that a little bit later on. Firstly, I tried to do everything myself, and that wasn't sustainable. Something that I've learned through the journey is that if you surround yourself with experts and the right people, then their knowledge will help you a lot. Their knowledge is almost 50% of the job, then you can do the rest of the 50% of the job yourself, rather than doing everything yourself. So for example, with the marketing, there are people in the community who have brand agencies. And I sat down with some of them and worked out, okay, what do I need to do on a poster to make sure that my product stands out? What are some good color schemes? Because obviously there are good color palettes as well. What is the most important thing on a poster? Is it the text? Is it the photo? What, what do I need to do? Because I didn't know that. And if I just went out doing it blindly, then it would take me a lot longer to learn the mistakes rather than getting the experience from other people because they've made the mistakes in the past and it just is a much more efficient process. So I sat down with experts in marketing. Um, spreadsheet, to be fair, because at that point it wasn't too complex, 
you could just do a simple spreadsheet by yourself, what's going in, what's going out. And then the third thing was website. Now, website was something that I could not do. And even if I tried to do it, I could not code myself. That was not an area of my expertise. And so luckily, I, was, I had a friend at school called Cameron. And Cameron is uh, someone who's an absolute whiz when it comes to these things. And he designed the website for me. Um, and so in a way, it was really good that he was there because he had a skill set that I didn't. I was much more the front-facing, the person who ran the brand, the person who could do the talking. But I wasn't someone who could do the website. And he was someone who was an expert in that. So I think that really helped. And without the website, we wouldn't have looked as professional as we did. And we probably wouldn't have grown as fast as we did. So another maybe bit of advice is when you start these things, it's great to find someone who compliments you. He doesn't necessarily have the same skill set as you, but can offer something different. So uh, that's the answer to your first question, I think. Your second question was that dynamic between younger and old. So what specifically do you want to discuss there? Uh, so before we move on to that, sure. I think uh, a very valid point you mentioned there, somebody who compliments you and not yeah. has the same skill set as you. I think it's important when you put multiple people with the same skill set in one group. Sure. Um, usually the work can be done by one person, right? Yeah. And um, usually it ends up being, I have the same skill set, so I might as well do this. Sure. But then every person has their own limitations. Yeah. And um, it's that's a really valid point. If somebody else is able to pick up on your limitations yeah. and then excel as a team, sure. uh, that would definitely, that's definitely the way to go. Yeah. And I'd actually say, in answer to one of your previous questions, that's still a challenge today because you're asked by so many people to do so many different things. And um, I find it very difficult to say no, partly from the perspective of if they're from the community, you know, if they're part of a larger family, how do I say no? But also, I always believe there's an opportunity in everything. You know, when you're given the opportunity, sometimes it's very difficult to say no because maybe there's something you get out of it or there's something that you're not expecting or you don't foresee that will come out of it. So one of the things that I think I need to get better at is then saying no and prioritizing what I do and what I don't do. Because the number of requests you get, or I get at the moment, is, is quite a lot. And it's to a point where if you try and do all of them, you're not going to do any of them well. Sometimes picking what you'll want to prioritize and driving that is something that I think you know, I need to get better at. But also, it's something that everyone who starts a startup would inevitably face. Because when you try and grow something, the opportunities will then become exponential. And you need to work out, well, what do I do? What do I not do? As well. That's a great point. So moving on to youth leadership. Um, sure. You've been in this position multiple times in your life. Yeah. And uh, we'll cover it uh, later on as well sure. um, with one of the questions I have yeah. for later on in the podcast. As a youth leader, why do you think it's important for youth to be more involved in these uh, decision-making processes? And why do you think youth leadership is important? Okay, so I think it's uh, important for three reasons. First reason is that whenever you have a problem, it's really important not to have a team where everyone thinks the same. Because if one person in the team is struggling to solve it, then everyone will struggle to solve it as well. The team needs to have a diversity of minds so that they can offer their unique insights on how they think they can solve the problem. So going back to somebody who compliments you. Going back to somebody who compliments you, exactly. Now, I feel that, generally speaking, leadership bodies have 
people of a certain demographic, and that means they're of a certain age, maybe retired age, or someone who's done successfully in their business, but very often you don't see the young mind there. And the young mind has a certain level of experience which other people can't offer, and a certain insight into certain problems that the older generation can't offer as well. And so it's very important that within a team, even if they're not the main decision maker, that they have some sort of input because then they can offer their unique insight into how to solve the problem. And this is something that I'd coin cognitive diversity. So it's important to have a cognitively diverse team, and one of the ways you do that is by having a young person or many young people in the team. And, you know, maybe <coughs> if you like a story to back that up is that there was... Uh, a really famous painting back in the day. And you don't mind if I go into stories, right? Yeah, a really famous painting back in the day um, of flamingos, right? The pink uh, birds that stand with one leg. And there was a research study being done um, where someone wanted to test out this cognitive, cognitive diversity. So they showed this picture of flamingos to two groups of people. The first group of people were Americans, and the second group of people were Japanese. The Americans, more often than not, saw in that photo... What a beautiful flamingo. It's amazing how the flamingo stands on its leg, and they focus on the individual flamingo. Whereas the Japanese, they focused on the community of flamingos. How beautiful is it that this community of flamingos do all of the same thing at the same time? So do you see how on this one picture, the same picture of flamingos, you had two different outlooks based off your upbringing, based off your culture, based off the way that you've been conditioned in life. In the same way, whenever you have a problem in front of you, that problem might be the same problem. For example, you might have a problem of not getting enough young people to the mosque. But the way that someone might analyze the problem may be different based off their upbringing, their age, their insight. And so that's why it's important to have this cognitive diversity. The second reason why I think it's important to have young leaders is because young people need opportunities to develop. And leadership teaches you a lot, whether it's how to play politics, because that's a very important thing, as, as you can understand, whether it's uh, how to speak, because often in leadership positions you need to be able to communicate not only to your team, but also to the people you serve as well. You learn skills like planning your time, because when you take up leadership positions, you're no longer responsible to yourself, but responsible to the people you serve, and so you've got to be accountable with your time as well. So you see how... So many of these skills get enhanced by leadership. So the second reason is personal development. And I think the third reason why young leaders are so important and we need more youth leaders is because often young people complain that the systems aren't fair to them or the systems aren't working for them, that the mosque is being run by people who don't get them, for example. So you've got two options there. You can continue complaining. You can complain all your life. Nothing's going to change. Be my guest. Or you can take the initiative... And you can get a seat, as they say, at the table and make change like that. Because so long as you don't do that, you're letting other people control your life for you. Right? You're giving other people the remote control for your life. They're making the decisions. So why are you complaining? You're, you're giving your remote control away. So the other option is you take that remote control back. You then become in charge of your destiny and you drive that. And one of the ways you can do that is through youth leadership. So it's also taking initiative uh, yep. on your own, definitely. So having been in these positions, and uh, you've highlighted the importance of it, right? and uh, I'm sure you've been in many of these positions, uh, what are some challenges that you face as an individual and you feel that many other people are facing not only in 
uh, your community, but communities worldwide, uh, same problems that are applicable everywhere. And uh, what did you do to address these uh, challenges? So uh, not in our community, mm -hmm. uh, specifically just a youth in any circle that you're part of. In any because uh, definitely being a young entrepreneur, being somebody who is yeah. quite young and uh, being in the position to, as you said, um, somebody, uh, someone's parent coming up to you and asking you to sure. coach them, right? Um, what challenges come with that when working with older people as well? So, as I mentioned before, I think, you know, the first challenge is that people will always call you out for lack of experience. And sometimes they fail to see that what you're offering is unique and can help them, but because of the age gap, they call you out for lack of experience. I think maybe the second issue that I faced uh, previously is that and this is, this is, you know, a fact of life. Institutions are built over many years. And so there are certain values and practices that are built over many years as well, naturally. And so when you come with an idea that may be a little bit different, it's obviously not going to sit well. And that's understandable. There's no point in complaining about that. That's just a fact of life, that that's the way that institutions are built. But sometimes it is quite challenging to try and come with new ideas which you think will enhance the community when it may be slightly different to what some of the embedded practices are. I think it's important to highlight that certain embedded practices are absolutely essential. If they come from the religious authorities, if they are grounded in our religion, they absolutely must be maintained. But the thing is, is that not all of these embedded values are. Some of them are not. And so I think sometimes there's an issue when it comes to differentiating the religious values that come from the authorities that are embedded, which must stay, and certain values that have no base in religion whatsoever, but people mistake to be in religion. And so when you want to change an aspect like that, sometimes you face backlash because people assume you're trying to change the religion when actually it's more of a cultural thing you're trying to change. I think that's, that's another challenge uh, as well. But one thing I must state is that when you work with an institution, you can't expect a revolutionary mindset. You can't be reactive with these things. It's very important to work with the community, work with these institutions, because that's how efficient change happens. Um, there are some people who might believe that causing being a rabble-rouser or causing uh, difficulties from the side is the way of change. But I always believe if you don't have a seat on the table, you'll be on the menu. So as a rabble-rouser, you're going to be on the menu. Right? So I believe working with institutions is very important, even if you feel frustrated at times, even if things are slow, even if they can't differentiate between what's grounded in religion and what's culture, maybe, it's still worth doing. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, definitely, with cooperation, getting a seat at the table, you're able to... Uh, prove your worth with yeah. uh, obviously with what you have to offer sure. uh, rather than just rebelling against every decision yeah. without having a concrete base exactly. uh, defending what you believe. It's right? very easy to rebel. It doesn't yeah. take any energy whatsoever. It takes a lot of emotion. It's low IQ, uh, EQ rather, emotional intelligence. Um, so it's an easy thing to do, but I don't think it's the right thing to do. Okay. Uh, yeah, definitely. So let's go back a few years. Yeah, uh, You've come far. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. And uh, this is 2023 MMK. Yeah. Uh, if 2023 MMK was speaking to 2018 MMK, yeah. uh, what advice would he offer him? It's a good question. Um, 
Okay, so, and, and to an extent, this is still advice I'd offer to myself because I don't think, you know, your growth is always a continuous journey and you never finish it. So the advice I'm giving back then would also be applicable now, I think, as well. The first thing I'd say is that when you run a business of this nature, when you see the money coming in, it's very easy to become fully commercially minded uh, and just focus on the money. But with a business like this, you have a social aspect because you're helping people to grow. And there are some people who may not be able to afford the services as well. So I would say it's always important to maintain that commitment that a certain percentage of your work is going to be pro bono, it's going to be for free, to help the community or to help people around you to grow. Uh, so I'd say to sum that up, the social capital as, is as important as your economic capital. The social capital, the work you do to help others, is as important as the money you make for yourself. You know, you shouldn't prioritize um, the economic capital over the social capital. And likewise, sometimes people might try and take advantage of you. They say, Joe, look, you're my mother's cousins, sisters, cats, uncles, brother. Can you do this for me for free? Right? At the same time, right, you've got to have boundaries to say, this is a business. It needs money to run. There are expenses going out. In order to be profitable, you need to have fine lines. So never place one over the other, but always maintain a balance between the two. That's, that's the first thing I'd say. Secondly, when you're doing this and you're growing a business, it takes a lot of time, obviously. But then one thing I found early on is that in the initial years, there was little time for me to develop personally as well. So you might be developing through doing, but sometimes you need to sit back and read as well. And because I was always doing something, always doing, growing the business, marketing, spreadsheeting, delivering the courses as well. I had very little time to just sit back, reflect, and grow personally through a way that, you know, in, in a way that you don't actually have to do anything. So I'd say that um, never compromise your time for yourself, time to reflect, and time to grow as well. Sometimes that requires taking an hour out of your day and blocking that out and just sitting there and thinking, what's gone well in the past? And what do I need to do in the future? Early on, I didn't do enough of that. And I still need to remind myself to sometimes do that. Because I'm someone who likes doing something all the time. Sometimes you just need to chill as well. Yeah? Um, I, I give that advice back then. And I continue to do that now. And the other thing is, or the third thing is, is that it's important to have a big vision. That's really, really important. You need to aim big. But then your steps to get there shouldn't be big either. Because that won't be sustainable. So if I aim to grow a uh, business, um, well my ultimate aim is maybe to change a curriculum in the UK so they include soft skills, uh, public speaking skills, then that aim is big. But I shouldn't have big steps to get there because big steps are unsustainable. Have a big vision, but have small steps to getting there, I'd say. Um, early on, I had very, very ambitious visions. And I wanted to take very big steps to get there, probably because I wanted to get there quickly. But having a big vision is fine. Just take small steps incrementally, sustainably. Because even before then, you have built a sustainable base. And even if something goes wrong, you still have a solid foundation of it to go on. That's great advice I think all of us uh, can follow, definitely. Um, so with all your experiences that you've gathered uh, running MMK Academy, sure. as well as um, being a youth leader, right? Yeah. Uh, what are some uh, community organizations or just general organizations that you've been able to use these skills in and um, 
if you're involved in any community organizations, yeah. if we could please shed some light on that. For sure. So shout out to uh, Al Hadi Youth in Stanmore, which is our uh, youth organization there. Um, I'm involved as a volunteer there, and I work in the personal development team. So I guess personal development is a very wide remit. Um, we focus on these different soft skills, so public speaking, debating, interview skills. But we also look at inviting speakers to broaden the um, members' horizons. So we had one with an entrepreneur called Hassan Kruba recently, where he was talking about his book called The Unfair Advantage. Um, and so we do stuff like capacity building. Is, is a term that's generally used for that. Um, and so that's, that's one community organization that I am involved in. And I love it because it allows me to grow personally as well through the leadership, but it allows me to serve others as well. Um, so that's the main community organization I'm involved in. But I guess MMK takes up a lot of my time as well. As I mentioned, we do a lot more of the politics aspect as well. And that's just encouraging more young Muslims to increase their access to political space. So that could be the journalism space, it could be the civil servant space, it could be the political space as well. Um, because one thing that worked for me very early on is, alhamdulillah, I was exposed to a very wide network. And a lot of the uh, journey and success of the MMK Academy is nothing really to do with myself, but the mentorship I received from the network. And so one thing that I want to try and do now is open up networks for young people in these spaces. Because at the end of the day, if we say I work with 100 people, maybe one might end up in politics. But for the rest of the 99, they may gain some invaluable advice from leaders in politics or journalism. They may gain some access to jobs, internships, or they may gain some really useful knowledge that they didn't have before. And that's why I want to increase access. So MMK takes up a lot of time with the public speaking and the politics side, but then Al-Hadi as well is um, the youth organization I work with. And just very quickly, I'm also a volunteer with the Lady Fatima Trust as well. Lady Fatima Trust does some excellent work in many, with many communities around the world. Predominant areas of focus are in Iraq, and there's a Mothernomics program, which is a program that takes a widowed mother um, and transforms her into someone who is a thriving, independent businesswoman. So you go from a position where you have a, someone you feel sorry for, someone who maybe lost um, their husband at an early age, and you give them the skills. First, you help them with their mental health, because when you lose someone at a young age, it's very taxing. So they give the mental health support. And then they train them up by giving them some sort of uh, business, either a sewing machine, um, they train them how to cut hair, train them how to cook to open a restaurant, and then they open up the market for them as well. Because when you give them these skills and they have no market, it's not going to help them. So you give them the skills, you open up the market, and then you allow them to grow as a businesswoman and become independent. So you transform the woman from someone whom society feels sorry to into someone who's an inspiration in society. So that's based in Karbala in Iraq. But also the charity does a lot of work in Zanzibar as well, close to home where um, they're trying to eradicate any deaths caused when a woman goes into childbirth. So unfortunately, um, when a woman goes into childbirth in Zanzibar, there is a chance that they may lose their life. And when they lose their life, if the baby survives, for example, can you imagine losing a mother before you even have the sense to see them? It's, it's, it's quite difficult. So trying to eradicate that is really important because the reason why the mother dies is very preventable. 
It's through very small infectious diseases which then grow to become deadly, something that can be nipped at the bud. So that's another project that they really focus on. And I help very much um, behind the scenes there, um, help advise on some of the strategy, um, especially when it comes to the youth side of things, because a lot of the time with charities, they focus on the money. How are you going to get donations? But a big part where charities, I think, need to focus on more is how do we get young people involved? Because young people may not have the financial capital, but they have the time and the energy to give. So that's something I'm helping to work on. How do we get more young people involved? Uh, that's great. So uh, your involvement definitely is making an impact. And we can see that in all of these areas, you've been able to translate your skills from MUN. You're able to now transform that skill into public speaking and with public speaking interview skills as well. So sure. each of these soft skills are transferable to many aspects in life. With that as well, you're able to turn it into a business and um, your skill set is quite vast. Right? Yeah. You're able to do personal finances pretty well now. Alhamdulillah. Um, yeah, definitely, because of the skills that your startup uh, gave you, you're also able to do some of the marketing. You know what? Budgeting is really important, and yeah. I didn't realize how important it was because before, money just used to leave. And it wasn't my money, it was parents' money. When you're young, you don't earn. So starting the business uh, allowed me to appreciate what money was, and I've become a lot more careful with my spending. And I think um, also with saving as well, it's become a lot better. And I wouldn't have done that if I didn't know what the value of money was, because when you start earning yourself, that, that's the only way you learn. So it's definitely been a journey of growth For in sure. many uh, areas, right? And expanding on your skill set, but just you as a person as well. For sure. Um, what message do you have for members of our audience, especially many of us being youth as well? And what, what piece of advice would you leave us today? So I would say that the one motto that I live by it's a poem. It's in a poem by Rudyard Kipling, um, who was a poet, and he said that you need to learn to treat success and failure as two impostors, just the same. So what he means by that, in my opinion, is that in life, life has many highs and many lows as well, and sometimes when we reach a position of greatness or high. We do something great. We feel really happy. Sometimes we get carried away. And we're not humbled down enough. And that might lead to arrogance. It may lead to complacency. It may lead to you thinking you know it all and then leaving no room for your growth. On the flip side, when you have a failure, and we always have failures, you always have failures, you then treat it as the end. It's detrimental. I can't recover from this. I'm never going to be able to do this again. So one thing that's helped me deal with my failures a lot is not going too high with the successes. So when you do something good, treat it as alhamdulillah. It's all in God's hands. Like God is the best planner. He did this for a reason. This is not me, but it's him doing it for me. And when you accept that, then you realize that actually, when you do something right, fine, feel happy about it for a couple of minutes, but just stay on that constant. Because when you stay on that constant, even when you dip low, you'll come back up to the constant. Rather than if you go really high and then you crash and then it's really difficult to navigate the constant again. But if you can just maintain the constant and oscillate just around that constant, that really helps. So treat success and failure as two imposters just the same is the thing that I you know, really, really abide by. One very valid point that you mentioned over here um, that 
also crediting some of your success, I mean, all of your success to the support of uh, God, right? Everything is not possible without his support. And um, definitely while our personal uh, aspect does come in and yeah. our personal incentive uh, to do a lot of these things and expand ourselves and yeah. broaden our, our horizons, um, without him, we really can't uh, achieve anything, right? Absolutely nothing. Uh, just one thing to add is that um, this ability to accept that everything in God's hands really helps from a personal perspective as well. Because often when you are in a position of leadership, and this is going back to youth leadership, um, when people criticize you, sometimes they may have the best intentions, but it comes across personal. And I used to be very sensitive back in the day to say that this person is trying to give me feedback, but they're trying to have a go at me personally. I used to take that very personally and used to feel really bad about it. And then, you know, one thing that was said to me is that realize that everything is in God's hands and nothing that you do is actually you doing it. It's God giving you the ability, your energy, your insight, and it's ultimately in his hands. When you leave it up to God, then you realize that actually, there's no me, really. And so if I get offended, that might be because I've developed an ego over certain times. But that's, that's not really important, because ultimately everything's in God's hands. I think that's really helped me to shrink the ego a little bit, to realize that everything's in God's hands. And when that ego shrinks, then it's very easy to fend off criticism. Say, okay, he's not having a go at me personally, he probably wants me to grow. And even if there is someone who wants to have a go at me personally, you know, ultimately, if there's no ego to have a go at, then you can't feel offended. That's quite insightful. Um, so that's all for today. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Um, I've definitely learned a lot. I'm sure our viewers have as well. I've learned a and lot uh, uh, from being here as well. It's fantastic. Love Dar, inshallah, be back. Yeah, inshallah, definitely. We're uh, looking forward to having you back soon. And maybe have one more of these as well uh, for sure definitely. and uh, shout out to this great initiative um i love a podcast especially if you're going on a run or something so make sure you subscribe what is it like subscribe and all of that and uh fantastic thank you very much That's all for today.